This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The scripture reading for today is Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. It was that beloved literary character, Samwise Gamgee, who once asked the question, what sort of tale have we fallen into? What sort of tale have we fallen into? Behind the curtain of ordinariness that we see draped around the surface tale, the events of Jesus' birth, there is an utterly epic story unfolding. I don't know how you can hear those words, those opening lines there, of a people who walked in darkness and saw a great light and not feel goosebumps running up and down your arms. Because, I mean, that is a phrase like, in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, that, that, that is something that's like, call me Ishmael, right? I mean, this is, this is something epic that's about to unfold. Uh, I don't know if you know your Bibles very well, but, you know, if you don't, you should know God doesn't tell any boring stories. You may have to dig a little bit at times with those genealogies, but I'm telling you, every time... You'll hit pay dirt if you dig deep enough. Uh, these are the kinds of scenes, though, that are always being unfolded and, and shown in Scripture every time that curtain of ordinariness is being pulled back. And it's a reminder that there is more here than meets the eye. There's more here than meets the eye. Under the ordinary covers of a baby being born, something extraordinary is happening. An epic story is unfolding, and this morning, I want to try to show us some of the framework of this true epic, because there's something that it offers us, 
especially at Christmas. And I think it's something that is often and, and, and often curiously missing from our Christmas celebrations. And it's joy. Joy. Haven't a lot of us had that uh, age-old uh, question run through our minds of, why am I exchanging uh, gift cards of equal value with my brother-in-law? <laughs> right? Why, why am I going through all this work to get my child another toy? <laughs> Uh, or, or maybe best yet, why am I sending Christmas cards to people I don't even like, you know, right? Why are we going through the motions? Is it just because it's what we do year after year? Joy is many times curiously missing from our Christmas celebrations as it seems to just every year just kind of slip through our fingers. But the promise of the story that we just heard was great joy. So why is it missing? Well, that's what I want us to dig into this morning. So first, the story. The opening scene here of this story is one where darkness has covered the land. It's reminiscent of the great tales that we've fallen in love with in our time. As one author puts it, the ship has gone down, Coruscant has fallen to the empire, Rome burns, winter has come to Narnia, something is rotten in the state of Denmark, Longshanks has enslaved Scotland, Commodus has committed murder, and Rome has fallen under the rule of its most wicked emperor ever. This is where most stories take up their tale, the kingdom has been overthrown, paradise is lost, Middle Earth stands on the edge of a knife. Our epic in scripture describes a similar scene. It's one cast in the verse immediately before this as one that is thick, dark, gloomy, Darkness has covered the land. The, the verses in, in the preceding chapter paint this picture of a people who are entrenched in occultic practices. They're trying to talk to the dead and whispers and murmurs, and yet the poetic prophecy opens up with one beautiful word, but. One little word that lets you know that something different is coming. It starts out in verses 1 to 2 here, then with a context, a place. It's a, it's a setting for the story. And it uses three names to describe this place that we heard. The first one was Zebulun and Naphtali, which was the uh, ancient uh, tribal lands, two ancient tribal lands located in northern Israel. The second one that we heard was the Way of the Sea, which was a name for an ancient uh, Egyptian trade route that ran through that same region. And then the final one was uh, the land uh, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, right? Three names, all dialing into the same place. But here's the thing. Nobody liked this area. This is a bad region. Nobody liked it. This was the favorite spot of the nations that, it, that were the enemies of Judah in that day would start their invasion runs from, okay? This is the starting line for the bad guys. It would have been a war-torn area that had been annexed by the Assyrians. It was known for unrest and problems. This is not... The spot that you go looking for hope. Because beyond it just being a land of distress, it is also a land of darkness. 
It's not just hard times. It's evil times. It is a land reaping the consequences of God's judgment. But then there's a second but. Because this is the twist in the story as it begins. It is the ironic plot twist because it would be from this spot, this same spot, that the rescue will arise from. It's a twist. And then in verses 3 to 5, we see what that rescue would then look like. That this is a people who will have joy again because the oppression of evil, being enslaved physically and spiritually to an evil oppressor will be brought to an end. And the victory here is likened to one of the biggest upsets of all time, right? This is like the Patriots getting beat, you know? This is, this is huge. Amen, you know, right? The upset is described like when Gideon defeated the Midianites. Right? If you're not familiar with that story, it's, it's a story of a handful of men, 300 men who take on a, an army, the, the, like the, the sand on the seashore, and all they've got is a torch, a light, in a jar. And they send an army of evil running. It's a huge upset. And we're told that every trace left over from this violent, evil oppression will be done away with. And then finally, in verses 6 and 7, we see how that plot is going to happen, that the rescue will come from a child, which is part of a, this theme Isaiah has been developing from back in, in chapter 7. You may have heard the verse before. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Specifically, here we see in, in the sixth verse that this son, with all these just uh, amazing titles attached to him, uh, that he will arise out of a, the ashes of a broken line of kings and he will establish justice and righteous, a rule that breaks the back of the oppressors, restoring peace. That, my friends, is an epic story. That is an epic story. But what makes it truly epic? In preparation for this sermon, I was uh, a couple weeks ago studying this passage, and I decided I would just retell the story uh, at the breakfast table to, to my kids on Friday morning. And so I'm, I'm there, and I'm retelling it to them, and uh, we get to the end of it, and I, I say, what can we learn from this story? And I'm watching the gears spin, you know, for a while. And then my oldest pipes up, and he goes, well, maybe we could learn that rescue comes from unexpected places. <laughs> after, after I picked my jaw up off the ground, I thought, out of the mouth of babes, right? I mean, sometimes we forget the value that God places on the eyes of a child. But see, friends, the reason why the Christmas story here, this, this epic is so epic, and what makes actually any story epic is not its size and scope, but it is the source of its rescue. It's its hero. It's that the rescue comes from the most unlikely of places. It is a farm boy on Tatooine, right? It is a hobbit from the Shire. It is a peasant returned home to Scotland. It's a child born in a manger. The reason why these other great stories tug at our hearts is because there is something in them from this story, from the story of Jesus, from this epic. 
And from that utterly unexpected and extraordinary rescue of the undeserving. The result for the believers, those who are rescued here, is applause. It's joy. It's abundant joy at this unexpected rescue. Listen, when you're suddenly awakened in the middle of the dark and you're stumbling around trying to find the light switch, you're surprised when you find it, right? When we're in the dark, we don't expect the light. When we are broken, we don't expect mending. When we have been bad, we don't expect to be blessed. When we're stuck, we don't expect rescue. But what if it happened? What if the unexpected happened? And see, friends, that's the insight I want to drive home for us this morning, that our unexpected rescue offers uncontainable joy. Our unexpected rescue offers us uncontainable joy. That's what offers us joy anytime, and yes, during Christmas time, because our rescue was unexpected, undeserved, and yet accomplished. <laughs> it accomplished the unbelievable. We weren't looking for it, and yet it came. We saw a light in the dark. We saw military victory from a child. Listen, if a kid beats us at Monopoly, we're surprised, right? And a little angry. But, <laughs> but right, we're surprised. We're, we're overwhelmed, let alone if one beats an evil kingdom. But Christmas, the Christmas story, is the greater fulfillment of this prophecy that through Jesus, God rescued those stuck in darkness. As the Apostle Paul said is that in Colossians chapter 1, he, God, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This, then, is our story, friends. This is our epic. It's the one we've been invited into. And so why... Do we keep missing out on the joy of its rescue? Why do we keep missing the joy? Especially when we are commemorating it at Christmas time. It's like that there seems to be some great disconnect between our life and the story and joy. We hear the passage of Isaiah 9, this epic reality behind Christmas being described, and we nod our heads and we think, that's nice. Now, what am I going to get my wife for Christmas? I've got two days left, right? I think that vacuum cleaner is still on sale at Meijer, right? Don't get the vacuum cleaner. It's a freebie. There just seems to be a disconnect. A disconnect. Sure, there's some happiness. There's some happiness in this season. But joy... Something substantial that the Bible describes in phrases like, the joy of the Lord is our strength? I don't think so. This reality, though, it should create joy. It should create great joy. It should elicit songs and, and gifts and dancing. It should cause us to want to hang streamers and decorations, to throw parties and have feasts, to, to celebrate, to make Facebook announcements. It, it should be so much joy. It should spill out onto everyone we know and, and people we don't know. It should cause us to, to have to give explanations for our joy. That's the kind of celebration it should elicit. But... 
we're being honest and just with ourselves this morning, nobody, nobody knows what you're thinking, but just yourself, how much of that celebration flows from joy? How much of the celebration that we have flows from that source? Or how much of our joy are we trying to milk out of the celebration? In other words, do we have it backwards? Do we have this thing all backwards? Don't get me wrong, there's, there's joy in gift giving. There is pleasure in eating a great cutout Christmas cookie. There's happiness in the sight of a beautiful tree. But why were we giving the gift again? Making the cookie? Decorating the tree? Really? Really? See, I think that the, the further we are from living in and celebrating out of our epic story of Christmas, the, the extraordinary reality that it is, the more that we start looking to all these other sources for joy. They're no longer expressions of joy. They are the dutiful attempt to create it or to recreate it. And frankly, those sources are always a letdown, aren't they? The 2019 top of the line with all the attachments Hoover vacuum cleaner just doesn't seem to offer uncontainable joy. We don't know what happened, but we'll try again next year. I jest, but, but the sad part is, is that year after year we keep getting it backwards and wondering why there is nothing substantial in our Christmas celebration. And that's the issue. If our celebration is where we are looking for the joy rather than the result of the joy, we've got it backwards. And we need to start straightening it out. And to do that, we have to return to the epic. We have to go back. Contemplating our unexpected rescue will help us to start straightening this out. One example from the text that I think we can, that can show us how our unexpected rescue offers us uncontainable joy, that contemplating one fuels the, fuels the other is found in verse six. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The New Testament authors, 700, 800 years later, they would apply these words to Jesus. And they would see the fulfillment of them in him. But have you ever wondered why? Why, why does, you know, uh, Matthew and Luke and Peter and, and John, why, why do these people keep seeing with such certainty these prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus? Why? Well, in this case... If you examine each of these titles here, you'll see that something starts to emerge. The first one, wonderful counselor here uh, that we hear, it's not like saying that someday he'll be a great therapist, okay? It's, it's more than that. No, wonderful is actually living up to its, its literal wording, right? It is to be, he will be full of wonder. This has a tone of, of miraculous, supernatural, Counselor here means one who is guiding, right? 
in this case, a, a nation or a people. So this is going to be a miraculous guide for a people. The second title, Mighty or, or Valiant God, is translated that way because it's actually clearly ascribed to God just a few chapters later. Third, Everlasting Father is a caregiver who is ever before and will be ever after. But the fourth title... The fourth title, though, is Prince of Peace, and it changes the dynamic, because in Scripture, the word prince, prince is a word that, at least up to this point, actually, I believe never in Scripture, is used to describe God. It is only ever used to describe humans, never ascribed to God. And so what we see is three standalone titles of divinity, one title of true humanity. That means that we will ha- it will be someone who will be fully God and yet truly man, who will come from the land of Galilee, of the line of David, as a deliverer to a people stuck in darkness. Does that sound like anyone you and I know? And it's prophesied 700 years before Jesus. Man, if you are a rescued person that you've been rescued by Jesus Christ, doesn't that just fuel your joy, your amazement over who our God is? And that you can see this laced from beginning to end? Spending some time to contemplate our rescue, our rescuer, will fuel our joy. It will fuel our joy, and it will, over time, change how we celebrate. The gifts we we buy, who we we celebrate, why we celebrate, and our attitude behind it. Seeking our joy from the right source can start to iron some things out. Historically, one of the ways that the church has cultivated this over time has been through Advent. Advent. Originally, Advent was not uh, 24 uh, small Lego sets, right, (laughs) or 24 different kinds of wine. It was actually a time of prayer and fasting and confession, a time like Lent, right, where before Christmas, in this case, a follower of Jesus would take time to remember the darkness that we were stuck in before he came. Right? That's where the whole candle thing arose out of, that God sent the light of the world into darkness, right? That, that, that we got saved because of him. It was meant to help prepare our hearts for the celebration by remembering the darkness to prepare to celebrate the light. So let me ask you, friends, what has God rescued you out of that is worth celebrating this Christmas? What is the darkness that God has pulled you up and out of last year? What has he changed in you because of him? That's what fuels our celebration. And here's how we contemplate that. We take a break. We fast. We fast and ask, what has God rescued me from that I get to celebrate? What has God rescued me from? Put the other stuff on hold to create space to write, to think, to pray, and answer that question. But it's not just our past 
unexpected rescue that offers uncontainable joy. It's our present. It's embracing our rescue. When I was in high school, I learned that I hate being rescued. <laughs> it's the last thing I want to embrace. I had a little silver cutlass Sierra at the times. So I know, don't be jealous. Um, when I was a senior in high school, I was driving back to my hometown of Ellsworth. And forgive me if I've told this story before, but Ellsworth is out in the middle of nowhere. And 15 minutes before I got there, I ran out of gas. Because as a high school kid, buying a car and keeping gas in a car are two different things. And so I had to swallow my pride, call my parents, wait for them to come get me. But see, this is Kansas, so every five minutes, somebody else stops to ask if you need help. <laughs> Calling my parents was bad enough. The third person, the fourth person, the, the, the state patrol trooper that, that pulled in and then waited for my parents to get there, that, that just sent it over the edge. I was embarrassed by my need to be rescued. But friends, I need needed to embrace it. Why? Because otherwise I'd stay stuck. <laughs> and I'm wondering, maybe God is shining some lights around you this Christmas. Through friends, talking about this Jesus, talking about this rescue. And maybe he's tapping on your window and saying, do you need help? I want to invite you, embrace it. Embrace it. Repent. Ask the Lord to forgive everything come in and be in charge to fuel your tank. Give it over to him. And there is great joy in that acceptance. A rescue, friends, offers a past, a present, and a future joy to anyone. But let's key in on that last line because isn't there a little bit of a cynic in all of us that quietly says, yes, I'm happy I got rescued, and that's a good reminder about joy, but uncontainable joy Really? Uncontainable? What does that look like? Is that like, you know, when Buddy the Elf hears that Santa's coming to town? I mean, is that uncontainable joy? What does that look like? Is that promising a bit much? What is uncontainable joy? Well, if you know your Bible, you can actually easily see that the joy was the thematic response of people who, by faith, believed the message that this was a child from God sent to be our Messiah. We see that in Elizabeth and Mary and the shepherds and so forth. But we also see that prophesied as being the response to Jesus' rescue. In verse 3, we, we find the description of this joy over our rescue. It says, you have multiplied uh, the nation. You have rescued its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil." The description of that kind of joy, what it is doing, it is painting a picture of abundance, of something stuffed to the brim and overflowing, that the state of your feelings surrounding this rescue, that's what it's going to look like. It's like when you are out of groceries, the, the, the cupboard is empty, the, the fridge is empty, you who have a 17-year-old son experience this far too often, right? And then grocery shopping day comes by and it is stuffed again, right? So much so you're trying to close the door, right? It's like that feeling you have when your wallet has been empty and now it's so stuffed with cash you're trying to, to close it again. I, I wouldn't know about that because I'm a millennial, but I've heard stories that that, <laughs> that can happen. It's that kind of joy, though, that's being described here. It's that kind of joy at the, of the gospel that pushes a smile out onto your face 
a song out of your mouth, the kind of joy that in prison can inspire Paul and Silas to sing. That's the kind of uncontainable joy described here. And part of why the joy in this passage is described as uncontainable is because it's not only looking to Jesus' first coming through Christmas, but it is also looking to his second coming, to this rule of Jesus that will have no end, that that it's uncontainable, that that he will establish justice and righteousness, a kingdom that we are citizens of now spiritually, but will someday be a part of physically when he comes again. So this passage directs us forward to to someday an even greater fulfillment that offers great joy. I don't tell this story lightly, but I was driving uh, down the road the other way just just another morning on my way to work, and and I just found myself ending up just starting to recite Philippians chapter 2, which is about Jesus coming in the form of a servant born in the likeness of men and humbling himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God, it says, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father." And as I approached the end of those verses, I just felt these tears of joy just welling up inside of me because I'm thinking, that's what I want for Christmas. More than anything else, I want, come, Lord Jesus, come. Why is the experience uncontainable joy? Because as a follower of Jesus Christ, Your past rescue, your present rescue, plus your future rescue is a sum total of all your hope. And to recount that in your heart is more than your heart can handle. That it has to spill over, it's overflowing, that you want to celebrate it. That's why it's uncontainable. That's why it breaks out into joy to the world. That's what's happening in your heart when that celebration of joy happens. And then it seems quite natural, doesn't it? So friends, let me encourage you. Don't settle for relief or plain old pleasure this Christmas. Choose joy. Don't milk it out of the celebration, accidentally getting it all backwards. Instead, stop doing something to consider this epic rescue, to contemplate what it has, to embrace what it is, and that it will someday offer to you and to the world. And when that epic story has filled your heart, let it out. Let it out. Because that unexpected epic rescue under the veils of an ordinary baby born in a manger offers the world and you and me uncontainable joy. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that joy is your offer this morning. And God, for those of us who maybe are struggling with joy this Christmas because we don't see it in our celebration, 
and we went looking for it there. Would you do a work inside of our hearts to change our focus, to begin looking back to what it is that we were meant to have, to seek out what you promised, that the joy of our salvation was made available because of your son's rescue of us. And for those of us, Father, in here this morning who are still considering that, Lord, would you plant the seed deep inside of their soul and may it someday sprout. In your name we pray, amen.